0: Hello, and welcome to the Islamic Studies section of the New Books Network, where every few weeks we feature an interview with an author in the field of Islamic studies about his or her most recent work. My name is Matthew Long, and I will be your host this week as we interview Ellen Amster on her book, Medicine and the Saints. What is the interplay between the physical human body and the body politic? This question is at the heart of Ellen Amster's Medicine and the Saints, Science, Islam, and the Colonial Encounter, 1877-1956. to In this pioneering interdisciplinary study, Professor Amster explores the French campaign to colonize Morocco through medicine. It is through medicine and medical encounters that Amster reveals competing ideas of scientific paradigm, knowledge systems, and technologies of physical intervention between the colonizing French positivists and the Moroccan populace. Amster's breadth of expertise in fields of medical history, Moroccan or North African history, the history of French colonization, the study of Islam and Sufism, anthropology, sociology, and philosophy is equally matched to the depth in which she explores these topics throughout the six chapters of her work. Each chapter explores a unique encounter, or more often clash, between the French and Moroccan. From Sufi saints in the first chapter to government hygiene initiatives in the fourth, Amster is meticulous and exhaustive with her source material. Even more distinctive is her use of oral narratives. Scholars interested in the role of women as medical practitioners will greatly benefit from Amster's exploration of the Qabla, or midwife, in the fifth chapter. Gradually, Amster demonstrates that French attempts to modernize Morocco were in fact the very seeds that led to Moroccan ideas of independence and nationhood. This work will have a tremendous impact on many fields and hopefully hopefully give rise to further interdisciplinary work in the fields of Islam, North Africa, North African and Moroccan history and medicine. Today we're talking with Ellen Amster about her new book Medicine and the Saints: Science, Islam and the Colonial Encounter in Morocco, 1877 to
1: 1956. Hello Ellen. Hello.
0: How are you today?
1: Great and you?
0: I'm doing wonderful. Um, Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us about your work. It's quite fascinating and a very, very interesting read. It deals with a lot more than just what the title even suggests, and I know we'll have a chance to kind of talk about that. But um, if you would, Ellen, can you please tell us a little bit about your uh, background and your biography?
1: Sure. Um, Well, I come to this um, through uh, uh, a number of vectors. First, I had been um, pre med when I was in college and did switch to um, the humanities and came to this particular topic by getting sick in Morocco. Um, And I lived with a family at that time. And I was, I both went to a French physician and was treated by the mother of the family with traditional medicine. And that gave me an opportunity to contrast. Um, Moroccan traditional medicine with Western biomedicine
0: very interesting so uh, can you tell us a little bit then um, you know besides your experience in Morocco about um, you know where you uh, received your degree
1: Sure. Um, I got my B.A. from University of Chicago and my Ph.D. from University of Pennsylvania where I studied the Middle East history, um, French history, especially French colonial history, and the history of science. And I studied with Stephen Fireman, who is a specialist in African health and healing. Um, and that sort of composite training, um, I bring... Um, I, able to draw in all, all of these different um, methodologies um, from um, from Middle East and Islamic studies from African history um, the use of, of medical narratives and healing narratives um, looking to um, health and healing as a source of history is um, and the uses of oral sources was extremely um, useful and then from French history the The French historians are particularly adept at finding how ideas um, turn into political events, um, a history of ideas, Um, and I studied with Lynn Hunt, so there's a kind of tip to the hat um, to her in the title of the third chapter, which is The Many Deaths of Dr. Émile Mauchamp," which is a reference to her article, The Many Bodies of Marie Antoinette.
0: Very interesting. So uh, you were living in Morocco when you uh, when you fell ill. How long have you uh, or how long did you live in Morocco at that time?
1: Um, I've been back and forth to Morocco over the past fifteen years um, to do this book. It was three years of field work with funding from um, uh, Fulbright Grant, um, SSRC Social Science Research Council International Dissertation Research Fellowship. Uh, Chateau-Briand, a Chateau grant from the French government, um, an Ames grant, uh, American Institute of Maghreb Studies. So I was I was able to spend quite a long time in the field. Um, but then it it was an additional, I would say, ten years of incubation to write and produce the book. Finally, so
0: wonderful. So you talked about um, you know kind of the catalyst was the experience that you had you know falling ill. And then, you know, being treated by your, I would assume, your host family, but then also being treated by a French doctor, I believe you said, correct?
1: It was a a Swiss-trained Moroccan doctor,
0: but yeah. Moroccan doctor. Okay. But then uh, that kind of is really one of the central pieces of your work, though. Uh, So if you would, can you kind of introduce us to what, you know, you were doing in this work, uh, Medicine and the Saints?
1: Sure, um, thank you. Well my um I think my central premise in the introduction is that um the body is the center of human subjectivity and um that if you consider what colonialism is, you know we've the, the um the post-colonial theorists have gotten us past thinking that colonialism is just a legal structure or political structure to these um, larger and much more enduring structures of meaning, different ways that colonialism is internalized, that it's epistemological systems. And I look at how, in fact, colonialism is, um, in particular, that it, the internalization of positivism in the body. Um, and. That um, for this reason, I, I opened the book with the, the murder of um, the unfortunate Doctor Mauchamp, who was um, whose death was the official pretext of the invasion of Morocco. And he was attacked by a mob and stabbed to death, and they stripped his body and dragged it through the street. And the French said, "Oh my goodness, this is evidence that these these people reject science and that they uh, that there's anarchy and they they need our protection, etc." But then. Um, if you look a little closer, there were all these rumors um, before um, he was killed that he, um, he was poisoning people, um, that he and other French doctors had been sent to Morocco in order to um, do espionage, which was true, that they were preparing for French invasion, which is also true, um, and that he and his... Um, colleagues were injecting people with a kind of French Freemasonry um, and that they were um, giving them a kind of subtle poison that would act um, in two or three years and that everybody they had treated would die. Um, From African studies, we know that these kind of medical rumors give you an indication of a deeper form of politics um the ways that people experience politics at a much deeper and you know no pen, no pun intended a more visceral level um so um this is the the premise is that the colonial encounter is really a struggle between the um islamic Sultanate of Morocco and the French protectorate over this body, this Moroccan body, in which the body is both the field of battle and its prize. Um, and I explore that in, um, in a, a multitude of ways. One is the, the sort of uh, history of um, colonial embodiment, that what colonialism is, is how people ingest and digest... Um, other epistemology, in this case, positive epistemology, and then they use both um, Islamic epistemologies and French epistemologies to live through their body. So it isn't, um, you know, um, technically or um, uh, up till now, there's a lot of studies of colonialism in the body that take um, a particular reading of Foucault um, in which the body is a kind of Um, object of these systems of knowledge and power, or um, Bourdieu um, argues that the body is a kind of clay tablet on which all these cultural modalities are inscribed, so that you're not even aware that you're reproducing this habitus. Um, But um, if you look at the histories of health and healing, first of all, the... these colonial powers have these elaborate plans for all these things they're going to do in Africa and Asia. But if you look at the implementation, it falls apart. People, people ran away. People, uh, took pieces of Western medicine and then incorporated it into different traditional healing systems and did whatever they want. Um, and people went to the French doctor and then, um, absolutely were, um, rejecting the French colonial mission so that this whole plan to uh, civilize through medicine was was not necessarily successful. And it, from anthropology, you can see all these interesting, um, strange composites um, and ways that people mix um, their history and medicine together. Um, you have uh, Michael Pausik's um, colonialism, shamanism, and the wild man, where people kind of relive this um, strange colonial experience as a kind of medicine. You have um, Janus' body wombs and alien spirits where these um, British officers who are, you know, centuries gone and dead from the Sudan, um, they reappear as these possessing spirits and a women's cult. So there's all these strange ways that this colonial history reappears and circulates um, in post-colonial bodies in health and healing. Um, and so the the question is, you know, uh, what is that? Um, why is that? Um, how? Do, what does it mean? Um, so that that I think is um, one of the central um, premises. And I think. If we look to religious studies, if we look to somebody like Scott Kugel, um, he takes the position of Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who's a phenomenologist, that um, there is no such thing as the human subject independent of the body. This idea of Descartes that I think, therefore I am, that that does not obtain, that you only exist as a human being in and through the body, so that's the place to start to study subjectivity um, and also the polity since the body and the body politic are by by necessity intertwined.
0: And uh, I wanted to uh, ask you a quick question um, concerning the uh, poison was uh, I kind of read that I might have missed something um, as literal was that meant to be literal or is that also metaphorical?
1: Well it's it's, it's both I mean the the reality the, the reality is he wasn't poisoning anybody. Um, mm-hmm. What he was doing was vaccinating people for smallpox, which was beneficial. Um, and Moroccans practiced variolation, which is a, a kind of version... Um, so variolation is taking um, pus from an infected person and introducing it Um, After it's been dried into a cut on the body of a healthy person, and then the healthy person develops a mild case of smallpox, and then um, that forces the body to create antibodies and et cetera, and then you're you're immune to smallpox in future. And what um, you know, the reason we have vaccination, right? Vaca means cow. What the problem with variolation is that you can actually develop smallpox and get sick. So what the Royal Academy of Surgeons did um after they had been introduced to um inoculation, which um, Lady Mary Wortley Montague brought back from Turkey actually, so it originally comes from the Islamic world, um, is that they used um the serum of cows who had cowpox and so they, inter- they inject people with that and you um, develop similar antibodies to cowpox, but because you're a human being and you're not susceptible to cowpox, you don't get that. For, for the people who killed Dr. Mauchan, I think they did sincerely believe that they were being poisoned. But at the same time, poison is um, precisely a metaphor. I mean, this is something that Louise White asked is why are these, why are there these medical rumors about um, colonial administrators poisoning people, or in her case, colonial administrators kidnapping people and draining their blood? This case in Morocco is, in some ways, it's metaphorical. That in fact, French so-called assistance, right? offering them financial assistance and loans, that was the cause of the rapid devaluation of the currency, of famine, of all kinds of dramatic social and economic problems. Um, The French were encroaching on Morocco through technologies, through the wireless telegraph There were rumors that Mauchamp had put a flag on his roof that he was going to signal these waiting troops that were going to come invade by wireless telegraph. And in fact, wireless telegraph was how they ended up orchestrating the invasion of of Morocco in 1907. Um, And although he was not... Um, poisoning people, he was a spy and he was providing um, information to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And the French were using medicine because they recognized um, from earlier experiences that both at the Sultan's court and with regular people um, that doctors were desirable um, and that people trusted them and that they allowed them access to the body.
0: Interesting. Thank you very much for answering uh, my question. So um, kind of, you know, there's a lot going on. I mean, we're talking about colonialism, about medicine, Islam, um, and then kind of, you know, how all these things are coinciding. And you then break your book into six chapters, each kind of dealing with all of these themes throughout, but in different ways. Um starting with the first chapter healing the body and healing the Ummah, uh can you start to unpackage a little bit in terms of that chapter the idea of the Sufi saints and the corporal city of virtue
1: Okay uh, sure so if you if you begin um with this chapter what i'm trying to argue is um that political power in Morocco as we know from Vincent Cornell was Divided between a limited temporal sultanate and a continuous spiritual immanent, and that this immanent was distributed among people who had knowledge of God or ma'rifah, um, and um, that's um, the reason why you have uh, all these saints, those so saintly persons who um, not only uh, heal people from sickness but also um can lead um political movements um can even create states or quasi states collect taxes um sign trade agreements um um and the the french colonial observers think that they um that they have um a kind of magical power that gives them political authority from time to time which they call baraka um but the um so what, what I attempted to do in this chapter is um unpack the uh, relationship between um healing and um political power and Sufi sainthood, and the point of departure was actually a medical um interview um I had interviewed these four elderly men in a clinic in Fez. And at the end of the interview, I said, is there anything else I need to know? And a man said, well, actually, my family cures this sickness called boozalum, which is a shooting pain from the base of the spine down the leg. And we cure it, and it's caused by uh, blocked intestines. And I said, how do you cure it? He said, we go out into the into the darkness, into the forest, and we find a blowing plant, and that's your plant, and we mark it with ashes or wheat chaff, and then we come back the next day, and we cut that plant, and we say, we cut loom in the name of Matt, son of whatever your mother's name is. And I said, why does that work? And he said, what do you mean? I said, what, how, why does that work? What does means? And he said, because our ancestor is the son of Mule Idris, because Idris II left 12 sons. It is a historical question. When the rule of the Idris ended and the Idrisids escaped, one of his sons came to our region, to this region of Talonet, and there he had children, and now there is this great tribe. So what I found interesting is what started out as a healing question turned into a history lesson. And there is a way that history is actually internalized in the body. The body is a kind of archive. Um, And if you take these healing narratives and you lay them beside, for example, this hagiographical compendium by Muhammad ibn Jafar al qatani called Talwat al-Anfas, and you look also at the um, topography of the city of Fez, and you try to combine them, you see, um, you start to glimpse a kind of, Polity that is, um, outside, um, the liberal, uh, political, uh, national polity that, that Morocco is now. That there is an alternate way of imagining, um, the body politic, the ummah, and also the body itself. Um, and so I, I start that chapter with a, um, a hagiographical narrative, um, from, um, from actually from a court chronicle, um, in which um, the the Sa- the Saadian Sultan um, had just uh, conquered the city of Fez. Fez had been in revolt, and um, the people of Fez were very afraid that he would take out his um, anger on them. So they sent these two saints, supposed to be people that are um, kind of the mad saints, and they confront the sultan and um and he says oh he said you know the people of fez couldn't find any to mediate for them but these two shitters in their rags and they get very angry and they say you won't have a free hand in fez for 41 years and they walk away and then the sultan's stomach reverses and he vomits species from his mouth and he doesn't um get better until he brings the saints back and begs their pardon and then the court chronically Chronicle says, um, you know, and this story is true because I heard it from many people and they summarize what was told to us. So, if you take that kind of narrative, not as, um, you know, this is a big question, sort of what is the real? You you ask such a good question because it's what is the real? Is it a metaphor or is it real? And the answer is yes, it's a metaphor and it's real. It's a different kind of epistemology. um, that if you if you take um, seriously this idea that the body um, belongs to God, so um, the Quran talks about the body as a location for God's signs. We will show them our signs in the horizons and in themselves. Um, And Ibn al adabi describes what he calls the divine system for the reform of the human kingdoms, and that's a plural, because it's it's both the the human kingdom of the city and the human kingdom of the body. As God created the soul to be his vice-regent on earth, so he created the body to be a citadel for its residence. And as a just ruler produces a harmonious body, so a just, I'm sorry, a harmonious city, so a just soul will produce a harmonious body, and an unjust soul will provoke the members of the body to revolt. And there are several Quranic verses in which God um, sets a seal on the mouth of um, evildoers when they come to the day of judgment, but their hands and their feet will speak to us of all that they did that God makes the body articulate, that the body is actually on loan to you from God, and um, if you are a bad person, your own skin and eyes and ears will testify against you. And so you have this sort of notion actually come to life in a particular time and place. In 1623 in Fez, this chronicler said that this sultan's body, his own stomach, revolts against him and he has vomits feces um until he makes things right so that the um if you think about the the saint he's the, the, the saint is not called a saint he's called wali right um friend of god people of god's right hand or murabit the person who binds or connects and i make the argument that what he what he connects is um he connects um the individual to society and the individual to God. He is the mediator in both of those ways, and it's possible because the human body is something that spans both society and the divine. That the body um, is um, is kind of a larger than this purely material, corporeal um, thing that we imagine. This kind of vehicle for your consciousness to 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 be transported, you have to have an alternate idea of the body. Um, and that um, the African historian Steve Fireman has this notion of the public healer, someone who brings healing um, both to the individual and to society, and in, the, this, in, in this instance, this um, saint, what he does is bring God's law simultaneously to individuals in their individual life and to society at the same time. And so that's why you have these um, several cases of uh, saintly miracles in which um, the sultan is punished, um, usually through... um, uh, So uh, always a corporeal uh, miracle. something happens to him. Uh, bad things happen to bad people, um, often in their bodies. Um, people that want to attack innocent um, Muslims and invade a shrine. Um, the criminals suddenly feel pain and blindness and vomiting. Um, so, this um, this is a, a notion of a, a human body that is um, engaged, uh, politically engaged. And if you take the figure of Mulay Idris... So, Idris II is the technically the son of the founder of the Islamic State in Morocco um, for the Moroccans. I mean, they were... Morocco was invaded by the Umayyads, but Moroccans don't tend to attribute the Islamic State to the (laughs) the Umayyads. They're very unpopular. Um, So Idris I was an Alid who escaped um, uh, Abbasid uh, uh, Empire to come to uh, Morocco. Um, He was... He had a son, Idris II. He was assassinated himself by an Abbasid assassin. So Idris II is really the one who builds up Morocco as a polity and who builds up especially the city of Fez. Um, And when you, I I talked to this elderly man who describes how he was cured from typhus by the baraka of Idris II. This gentleman believed that the blessing from Mouli Idris cured him of typhus, because this is a, a, a way in which the, the actual body of Mullah Idris becomes the city space. And then you see a sort of merger through this person's body of the family tree of the prophet Muhammad, since he's a descendant of the prophet, with a kind of tree of Sufi knowledge um, with the physical world. If you look at the um, the grave of um, Ibn who who's a very famous... Um, there's an actual tree that grows out of his um, out of his grave um, so i tried to illustrate this um, this um, pre-colonial Sufi polity how it was imagined and then show how the sultan um, Hafiz in 1908 um, used um, Salafia philosophy um, from the orient in order to destroy uh, sainthood in order to impose um, the this new model of the polity with the sultan as the sovereign. And that comes from an interaction with French positivism.
0: Interesting. And so then moving forward to uh, chapter two in your work, can you kind of tell us a little bit about that?
1: Okay. Um, Chapter two is a sociology of knowledge. Um, about Islam in uh, France, and it's called Medicine and the Mission Civilisatrice, a civilizing science and the French sociology of Islam in Algeria and Morocco, eighteen thirty to nineteen twelve. Um, and I argue that the um, what is distinctive about the French civilizing mis- mission is that it is um, an imperial positivism that what the French um, felt they were bringing to the world was a positivist vision, um, that, um, I'm just checking to make sure, um, the connection was good, um, that, um, in 1830 to 1870 or so, um, the French physicians who, um, helped the troops invade find their medicine just collapses, that the French army, um, you have a lot of death. You have a lot of people that have cholera. Um, so they become uh, very receptive to local Algerian Atiba or physicians, and they study um, local medical practices. They uh, adopt a lot of practices. They have um, common... Um, a great similarity in practice. That's something that Nancy Gallagher has noticed because they both come from the same Galenic tradition and, of course, the Arab physicians are the foundation of of, um, Western um, medicine in the first place. Um, But what um, I argue the the real shift comes um, not from the physicians but from um, French sociologists who adopt the ideas of Auguste Comte to argue that um, the fact that Moroccans and Algerians use, for example, Quranic amulets or saint visitations to heal from sickness shows that they have a fundamentally irrational approach to the universe, um, that they are incapable of science and incapable of rational thought. Um, And this... um, this becomes, for example, Edmond Duté, who is the first um, member of the Durkheimian um, School, the first editor of L'année Sociologique to specialize in Islam, he was sent on five secret missions to Morocco from 1900 to 1907 in order to provide the Affaires étrangères with a plan to govern uh, Morocco. And he said... Um when he looked at saints and sultans and healing and saint visitation, he said, This is a form of primitivism. The saint is a a kind of fetish, a human fetish, like the Gri Gri of the African witch doctor. Um that the, the the primitive um rubs his um body with a stone in order to capture the sickness in the stone and then puts it on uh, a pile of stones to cure himself, it's a magical transference that shows the irrational understanding of causality and an inability to understand disease. Um, and in fact, people um, did, did visit um, saints in that way and they would uh, pile up a big pile of stones called percour. Um It doesn't mean that they are irrational, but that's how it was understood by the French Um And so, this whole um, type of Sufi knowledge um, itself is um, stigmatized and rejected as irrational, as despotic, as dangerous, as the opposite of uh, enlightened positivism. Um, And that this, um, in fact, this, I argue, is the origin um, uh, that the the Islamic modernists people like uh, Mohammed Abdu and Al-Afghani. Um, Al-Afghani especially was attracted to the ideas of August Comte that once you have um, everyone um, uh, coming to the world through positive knowledge, um, that which is true and verifiable and observable, um, verifiable through scientific method, the constructive, um, the true, that there would be harmony between all the peoples of the world. And both of them were trying to reconstruct political worlds that were very fractured. Uh, Comte was writing 1830 to 1848. Uh, He's looking at a France post-revolution, extremely violent, and then the beginning of um, uh, the Industrial Revolution, and there was rapid regime change in the early 20th century. So, he he had an idea that once you attain true knowledge, there will be a harmony of people and a harmony of polities. Um, and um, Afghani had to a confront Ernst Renault who said that Islam killed science and that Islam was the opposite of science. Um, and they had a very public debate in the in a French journal, um, Paris Journal. Um, and Afghani said um, he liked the idea of Comte, and, and he and Abdul called themselves Comteans. And but he argued that in fact Islam contains all of this true knowledge, all the products of reason, all the products of positivism, um, and that Muslims were not powerful and united because they had forgotten how to be real Muslims. But by getting back to this true Islam of the Salaf, uh, the ancestors, that there would be a harmony very similar to what Comte had described. Um, but I, I I think that that in absorbing French uh, positivist thought as a good, they... Um, they've also absorbed this repugnance for alternate epistemologies because positivism organizes the entire um, universe from the simplest level of reality, which is number, to the most complex, um, Comte said, was society. And in the end, he wrote, mankind definitively substitutes herself for God without um, forgetting his provisional services. So, it, it is a... Um, It is a um, an epistemology that does not really allow for metaphysics. Um, For uh, medical questions, it meant that um, when the French come to Morocco, they have this idea that um, through um, a positivist science of society, Durkheimian sociology, they can measure each society according to its level of evolutionary progress and tailor a um, a government appropriate to that level, and then use medicine to evolve people toward a modernity, which is, of course, French positivist modernity, um, that the, they can show that their science is superior um, to the native in the laboratory of his own body. Um, so um, that, that medicine is more than just winning hearts and minds. It's the civilizing science. So that's chapter two.
0: Wonderful. And, um I, I know that you do this later, but uh, when you uh, talk about uh, the term Salafi, uh, how, do you, how are you defining that?
1: Um, when I say Salafi, I mean the Albert Hurani version um, of uh, 19th century efforts at Islamic modernism. Um, unfortunately now, the only folks called mm-hmm. Salafi are, um, you know, one branch of Abdu's disciples, Um, which became um, highly radicalized and who now call themselves Salafi. But I argue, in fact, that those guys, despite their um, pretensions to be the true Muslims, are actually positivists, and that's why they bulldoze Sufi shrines and blow up, um, you know, and that's why they can't tolerate alternate um, types of knowledge. That's why they're so anti-Sufi. Um, that's obviously not an uncontested idea that this comes from French positivism, um, but I'm, I'm ready for the argument. So.
0: <laughs> Great. Um, and then um, as we get into Chapter 3, this is actually where you really start to uh, turn your attention to the initial uh, vignette or, uh, you know, tale that you relate in the beginning concerning the uh, death of the uh, doctor. Um, but I believe also this is um, one of the chapters where you also really kind of start to challenge some of the ideas of, you know, the relationship between, uh, I guess, science and Islam, uh, at least in, uh, in Morocco throughout the centuries and the relationship mm-hmm. that uh, certain sultans had with, uh, you know, the outside world.
1: Um well, for sure, you know despite the the story that the French colonial lobby told the French parliament, you know that this the fact that the Moroccans have killed this this um this doctor shows how primitive they are, you know that um, that they are. You know the evolution of peoples is never accomplished without sacrifices and without victims, which was what the French ambassador to Morocco um, said in his eulogy, um, and he was called civilization's martyr and so on. Um, that the reality was that the that the Moroccan sultans had French and English physicians at court from the 16th century um, they were either invited or they were captured in um, maritime jihad or piracy um, and so the Sultan's had you know they had engineers they had soldiers they had physicians they had um, city planners who um, who worked they had artillery uh, specialists <laughs> um, all of these folks who had been captured in um, in, in at sea, um, or who um, were what's called renegades, renegados, that they would defect uh, uh, from the European armies and and join the Moroccan army, um, and that um, the the scholars were very aware of the uh, benefits and and dangers of European science and technology, and they saw exactly what was happening in the Ottoman Empire, and they were also very much aware um, of the ambitions these different um, European powers had, and the French and the British and the Spanish and the Germans were falling all over each other, trying to offer the Moroccan court their own um, technical and uh, um, medical expertise but they were all, that that was all with a plan to you know ensnare morocco into debt um to to do espionage and topography and everything else um And there was uh, one sultan, uh, Mulei Hassan, in the 19th century, who was very smart, and he played them off of each other, and he made sure that nobody had the full picture. Each power was assigned one small part of his army, but nobody had the full story. Um, But he died... um, in the late 19th century, and he was replaced by a very naive, very young, very easily manipulated sultan, um, Aziz and the Europeans just um, they they took, they were managed to take over um, um, to a tremendous degree, um, and then the Treaty of El um really gave. Um, control over the whole debt to the French. Um, There was what's called the Hafizia Revolt, this general revolt where the uh, Moroccans um, rejected Abdelaziz as uh, the the scholars deposed him as um, morally deceased, and they rallied behind his brother. His brother tried to um, seize power, had a prominent Sufi um, executed for heresy, tried to call himself the sovereign, um, but that was not terribly successful. He signed the Protectorate Agreement, um, and that agreement located sovereignty in the person of the Sultan. Um, but he he personally was not sufficiently pliable, and the French kind of pushed him to ab- abdicate. And he um, broke the royal parasol and got on a, a boat for France. And... Um, so it it looked like really the sultanate had completely been demolished by the french but leote um the french resident general needed the sultanate um to rule through and they needed they needed something so that he needed to resurrect it so what he did was appoint um a cousin of the sultan to be sultan um and set about reconstructing him as a person, as a sovereign, as an institution. And he does it largely through, um, ceremony and, um, through the body of the Sultan. Um, I kind of argue that, that they, that they reconstruct him as a, a king, you know, the king's two bodies, as they say for European kingship. Um, and, th- and there were all these elaborate ceremonies where, um, You know, for example, a hadiah ceremony where the the French walk humbly on foot in front of the sultan and and the sultan receives gifts and so on. Um, And even in uh, in medical terms, um, for the most part, you know, the French physicians rejected saint healing, but there is um, one physician in Fez, Leon Christiani, who, if you visit um, what's now Ibn Khatib Hospital, but was Kokard Hospital, um, uh, Christiani actually had a fake saint shrine built into the wall of the hospital so that people, when they came to the hospital, would feel it was a healing space. And the French located their hospitals next to prominent saint shrines so they could draw people who had come to that saint with real problems, with blindness, with madness, with sterility, to their own hospital. Um, and they, they built the hospitals using architectural elements that look like saint shrines. So they did... Um, Leote and the people that he recruited for his service were smart, um, in that they understood that they needed to co-opt elements of, um, traditional healing and traditional authority to win Moroccans over. And what's, I, I think, kind of interesting is when I interviewed, um, people in Fez, either nurses in the hospital or doctors in the hospital or just regular folks, um, they all knew Dr. Christiani. I, one man, I just, he had a, a stand where he sold, um, um, cookies and, and gum. And I showed him a picture of Christiane. He said, Oh, Cristiani, he was a good man. He, he would come to you in your house with his suitcase in his hand with his nurses and say, Who is sick? Where are they? So this one guy who, um, he was made fun of by his colleagues. They said, you know, he thinks he's the St. Martin of assistance and he's all working, you know, 15 hours a day in his, in his little in his little office, but the people really remembered him, and they ascribed to him a wife from a Sufi order. They said he was either he was married to a saintly family that his wife was Wazani or his wife was um, Alawi, which wasn't true. But that's kind of how they, in fact, absorbed him um, into this medical universe, into this healing universe. So that's chapter three.
0: Great, and uh, then as we move forward, um, when you move into the next chapter and you talk about hygiene, it's actually quite interesting. Uh, you look at uh, French hygiene, um, you know, through five specific uh, maladies, um, but we kind of learn though that you know French efforts uh, to alleviate that seem to not always be successful.
1: Right. Exactly. Um- so that um that chapter is called um, Frederick le Play in Morocco: The Paradoxes of French Hygiene and Colonial Association in the Moroccan City." So what it was said of Resident General Leote is that he tried to bring um, uh, he he was sort of the patron saint um, to the colonial lobby of this um, politic uh, of association of association with the colonized. Um, where everyone's, um, own culture would be respected and the French would get what they need financially from their colony. Um, but that the governed would be part of, uh, the process. They would be included. Their needs would be respected and they would receive all this wonderful technical assistance, roads, um, medicine, um, and the, and, and, and that they would, um, Be the great uh, beneficiaries. Um, And what Frederick Le Play um, had argued in 19th century France was not that. France should be this radically equal place, but that the elites must take care of the poor and include them and give them a welfare state and give them a house and give them enough to eat um, and make sure that they're cared for and that France would be this harmonious body. And so what Leote was doing in principle was taking that principle and transferring it to the colony, to Morocco, where the French would be the elite who are helping the Moroccans. Um, but if you look at um, all these technologies um, and administrative apparatus that they brought to govern in Moroccan cities and to bring um, what we would call public health measures, that's what they call hygiene, public hygiene, we call public health, um, a lot of things that they brought actually backfired, and some um, some of this public health um, actually exacerbated epidemics rather than curing them, um, and it's because... Public health is not a simple good that can be transferred from the metropole to the colony. It's only as effective as the structure of power and the law and uh, social relationships. Um, So, those four diseases are um, typhus, plague, um, typhoid, um, and malaria. And... So I argue um, you can understand the, co- the colonized cities through these four diseases. Um, malaria was the the first um, element of French city planning. The French um, planned their Nouveau City, their Ville Nouvelle. Um, two kilometers away from the native city because that is the flight radius of the Anopheles mosquito and that way they felt they would be safe from malaria and safe from what they call the virus reservoir, which was the Moroccan. Um, but this uh, broke down in various ways, not least because um, you couldn't control native bodies and keep them out of the French city. Um, the the disease that really broke down those barriers was uh, typhus. That typhus is transferred on lice, which are body lice, which live in your clothes and your um, and your your home. Um, so they um, they these extremely draconian um, methods to get rid of typhus. They have to strip people. Uh, naked and, and, uh, shower them and rub their bodies with petrol and, sh- and what they would do then is deport them to the countryside. Um, and Moroccans would hide their sick and their dead because they didn't want their relatives to die in a quarantine station. And the more, you know, they, they, um, they surrounded Jamal Fana, that famous square in Marrakesh, and they, um, they rounded up, you know, thousands of people and, <laughs> treated them at gunpoint and they found, you know, people would revolt, they would run away, they would hide their relatives, and that the the um epidemic would get worse because people were hiding. Um so they had they were forced to bring Moroccans into municipal government um and give them a, a bigger voice. Um and um and the and this turned out to be a very interesting um exercise for everyone concerned um, the um, the Moroccan nationalist movement um, actually started in uh, in fez and it started over a water protest and water is related to typhoid so essentially the in fez but in other cities too um, there would only be so much water and the French would divert water supplies from the native city to their own city and that meant that um Um, water would, um, be decreased, um, water quality, um, wastewater, um, and they also privatized water so that they would clean it and they would put, um, chlorine bleach in it to make it, um... Free of cholera and typhoid and other um, bacterial infections, but then if you were if you wanted water, you had to pay for a hookup. You had to pay for sewer hookup. You had to pay for water access. So water um, becomes privatized, and Moroccans can't afford. A lot of Moroccans could not afford um, water, so typhoid becomes a Moroccan disease instead of um, originally it was. Um, more French people got typhoid than Moroccans. But when the French take the water, the disease statistics reverse. And when you have these this big uprising in Fez in the 30s, um, the, the real origin of uh, the nationalist movement, when these young students end up mobilizing crowds of people and you have riots in several cities, it's over water. Um, and you have these elites in several cities petitioning variously the Sultan, the resident general, and the president of France demanding water. And I think it shows that the protectorate really is unclear who is governing and in whose name. So that's chapter four. Oh,
0: thank you. And in, in chapter five, harem uh, medicine and the sleeping child, you really start to look at uh, the lives of women in Morocco and kind of the uh, how. Yeah, medicine in islam but then also traditional medicine are all kind of uh, are then intertwined and then eventually how uh french medicine also becomes intertwined into that as well
1: i think that the 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 um the key figure that makes that happen is um the moroccan midwife or kabla or you know, the french would call sajfam. so um Moroccan midwifery I came to the conclusion both by looking at um the um the classical tradition so there are there are physicians um in who who wrote you know for example an epistle on um pregnancy or um a study of embryology um um uh different instruments to deal with um you know a blocked urethra um but the practice of birth was always one um, for women, and with oral interviews um I could see that what women did was mediate between different systems of healing. So it was really the woman, the mom of the family, who would decide if you were sick, what your sickness was and whether you should go to the apothecary because you should get a Galenic um, remedy, you should get a, um, a, a, a pharmacological remedy from from him, or whether you should go to a saint shrine, or whether you should do both. Um and um, and when um, when the French come, they see their big enemy as the Muslim woman. The Muslim woman, first of all, she's not accessible because she's secluded in her house and so they're not allowed to go in the house um, and they're not allowed to touch women if women won't come voluntarily. But also, they're really angry at this Moroccan matron, they call her, who, you know, makes the patient take a leg of frog and earth from the cemetery instead of our real medicine Um, and so they, um, the first thing they do is recruit, um, French women to be intermediaries, um, both to spy on, um, Moroccan women in their homes. There's this, um, Aileen Delens is the wife of a French colonial officer who writes a book called Sorcery, Medicine, and Beauty, which is full of recipes of these Moroccan matrons. Both for different types of sicknesses, and also um, ways to poison your husband, ways to control your mother-in-law, ways to get rid of somebody that you don't like. Um, so I, I think I'll do that. You know, if this this whole academic thing doesn't work out. Um, so um, and the the friends are like, we have to, you know, we have to find out what these people are doing so that we can interfere with it um, and rescue the patient from all this terrible stuff. But at the same time, they are um, what's called bioprospecting. They're studying these remedies that the women are using, and they test them in the laboratory because they want to find new drugs. And they find, actually, a lot of them have important medicinal properties. And like by 1948, there's something like eight French pharmaceutical factories um, in Morocco um, producing drugs because Morocco has such a rich uh, botanical and um, mineral base for medications. but the way they, um, they finally subdue the woman and make her into a medical object instead of a medical rival is through the law and through the laboratory. Um, that one, and I, I just look at one particular example, which is, um, the sleeping child. That there's this, um, this idea which is derived from Galenic medicine that has been absorbed into the Islamic legal tradition that a child can, um, developing, uh, a fetus can stop developing and sort of freeze in his mother's belly, where he can remain frozen for two or three or four or five years, or even seven years, depending on which school of Islamic law. Um, and that he could then be reawakened by heat, either um, hot foods, uh, spicy foods, or going to the hammam, or sex with husband, or all three. Um, and so, This sleeping child was very useful. Um, It was diagnosed by women um, and um, the midwife, the mother, the woman herself. Um, Obviously, it means, you know, if it would prevent divorce because you would say, I'm pregnant and then your husband would hesitate to divorce you. Um, If your husband dies, you can say that you have a sleeping child and then any child born within the five years would inherit. Um, if your husband is dead for two years and then you have a child, it wasn't a bastard. It's a child, you know, that had been sleeping, and then that child too would inherit. So it it got around. It was very useful to the jurists for lots of reasons. And then the French say, "Well, you know, clearly, obviously, you can't possibly believe this. You know, what you, you this is a physiological absurdity." And the 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 um. Moroccan jurists say, you know, mind your own business, you have your medicine, we have our medicine, it's not your problem, you know, we believe in this. So the Institute Pasteur starts offering a urine test for pregnancy and it's the Moroccans themselves that start coming to the Institute Pasteur for the urine test. These Berber courts in the countryside, they start sending women and especially these um, husbands, they're like, that's not my child, I'm not going to support that kid. Um, and they, or my wife isn't pregnant. I demand a urine test. So it's not something even the French force on anyone. They just offer it, and the Moroccans insist, and they start going. And women actually start coming themselves in order to get the test to see if they are pregnant, um, to see if they should undergo surgery or make different decisions in their lives, so that the. Um, But the the overall um, move is to augment French medical authority at the expense of women's medical authority. Um, So that's that's chapter five.
0: Great. And um, just a question going back a little bit. You had mentioned uh, the French establishing uh, numerous pharmacies. Uh, Can you give us maybe an example or two of something that, you know, was found in Morocco? Uh, in terms of, uh, her I guess, I, I don't know the appropriate term, but something that was cultivated uh, for the purposes of medicine.
1: Sure. Um, you know, for example, um, Aileen Delens writes, um, for the sickness that comes to children at the time of flowers, that you should um, coat the child's nose and mouth with tar, cut off the head of a serpent, Put it into a hollow reed and suspend that from the caftan of the patient. So that sounds, you know, that sounds, you know, like magic or superstition, or, but actually, this tar that they're talking about is a tar made of cedar. It's actually a, a kind of a tree sap. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, there were these two, um, for example, there, there, there was a whole journal that the French created for, um, botany and pharmacology that tested mostly, um, different Moroccan plants and especially these traditional remedies. And these two military, um, pharmacists tested this tar and they found that it was a very effective anti gonorrheal um agent that it was very effective for a variety of skin ailments and that it was um absorbed through the mucous membrane so that you put it on the gums and you put it in the nose and that's how the the body would absorb it and um they had um they had been relying on um a similar kind of product that was very expensive from um India that the the British had found and so they were like, oh this could this can replace um santal and cod oil um C A D E which are which are also uh, from trees. Um but for example um there's a similar type of um substance called Shalmugra oil. Which has a funny name, um, Shalmugra is an is a leprosy cure um, that was um, uh, that was sort of independently discovered in Indochina, Brazil, India, um, and I think one other place. That sort of these different native um, traditions uh, have legends about this. Um, magical tree and how it cures leprosy um, and then the French come and they find you know, in Indochina there's a, ver- a veritable leprosarium um, run by this traditional healer in which he administers shalmugra, shalmugra oil um, and they um, and then, you know, obviously they um, they adopt the same uh, oil same, it's, a, it's a tree oil so it's also a sap and um, for, um for medicinal purposes I mean really uh, pharmacology has not changed a great deal even from the time of the ancient Greeks the difference is that um, our pharmaceuticals are refined so that you get rid of all these other plant matters um, and just concentrate the active ingredient that um, from the plant but that also um, that also is more violent to the body. Um, to have these refined substances the way we have them instead of in their original plant form, it's a little bit easier. Um, it's not as strong, but it's it's gentler to the system.
0: Okay. Now, that, that's very interesting. Um, and then uh, in your uh, final chapter, A Midwife to Modernity, um, could you go ahead and talk about that a little bit?
1: Um, sure. That's kind of about when um in the the late forties and early fifties the French for the first time create on a mass scale um maternities for Moroccan women and um to sort of improve the conditions of birth um, for Moroccan women and Moroccan families um, and um you know the reason for that is that um they discover that they're um that the Moroccan population, especially the urban population, that's um, working in their factories, in their homes, um, the um, the the population that's providing for this tremendous boom um, that made Morocco so profitable that they um, that they have these these new metallurgy industries and canning and sardines and construction. Um, there are um, these two um, a high school teacher and a sociologist that start um, visiting and noticing these huge shanty towns next to Rabat and Casablanca, and they um, they go from house to house and they do a sociological study and they discover that these people are all working in French industries for the most part, um, and that they have tuberculosis and that they are undernourished and um, that the children are in Casablanca, for example, 97% exposed to tuberculosis by age 11, and that the infant mortality is something like one in three. So, um, so they they suddenly uh, so there's there's this factor where they suddenly um, realize um, that this valuable what they called useful Morocco, they used to call it. Maroc utile, so useful Morocco was in danger. Um, and also, in 1944, is the Independence Manifesto. Um, so, they're also very concerned in a very concrete and material way that the Moroccans will have an independence movement and kick them out. So, they think, okay, how can we um, protect our investment and also prevent revolution? And the conclusion is that um, they turned to this guy, Robert Montaigne, who had been a, a, a kind of modern modernist sociologist, and he had been at the, um, at, in Damascus in, in um, French Syria, and he developed this theory um, that um, societies in the Islamic world had been forced to modernize extremely rapidly, that tribes were disintegrating, and that Soon you would have this rootless proletariat, you know, vulnerable to the organization of nationalists and communists and who knows what else. And that the solution was for France to step in again with the welfare state to become like the father of this family, that the family structure, the patriarchal family was exploding um, and that Moroccan men could no longer... um, really be the father of the family. So, France would have to be the father of the family um, and offer medical care for women, schools for um, children, raise uh, Moroccan children themselves, especially boys, um, and um, and educate the Moroccan woman to be a good mother, to be a good housewife, um, to be um, raising children in the appropriate way. So they, they open these, um, maternities and they recruit all these French women as social workers, um, to train these, uh, Moroccan women to be good mothers. And, um, they, I think what's, what's interesting is that first the, the, French women also are mediators in the same way that the the midwives in the previous chapter have been mediators between different systems of knowledge. That these French social workers, even though they're recruited to... You know, tame the Moroccan woman for the French doctor, and they're told you know that these women are so primitive they can't possibly understand the specifics, but they could mimic you know gestures of childcare and proper cooking. Um, I interviewed um, this lady Noelle Courtegris, which is a kind of funny name in French. Um, She had been uh, recruited um, in the end of the colonial period. She opened like uh, several. Uh, maternal and infant health centers in these shanty towns in Casablanca and Rabat at the end of the colonial period and she was actually invited by the Moroccan Minister of Health after independence to stay and to continue her work for another 10 years and she opened more centers. Um, And she was in charge of maternal and infant health in independent Morocco. So they appreciated the work that she was doing. And in the interview with her, she said... um, that what she did was she and her friends um, they would try to identify what she called the women lead leaders the people in the community that other women looked to um, for advice for especially questions of health um, for financial advice um, and then those women they would befriend and then these women leaders would invite them over for cookies and tea and then they would invite other women of the neighborhood. And if those other women came for cookies and tea, that was the opportunity to start talking about children's health. Because she said, you know, you can have a law that the that the children need to be vaccinated, but that doesn't mean anything. It's not going to happen unless the women are convinced to do it, and you do it through these women leaders, and that that's the same approach to social work that they had in France itself, and it's these male doctors that say, you can't do that. You know, these people are too primitive. They don't understand, and this woman just brushed them off and was like, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> And that what the medical care then that was delivered on the ground was not necessarily what the French colonial state had envisioned. So the French state had all these plans, but it's really these women who implement it. And these women, they also form the bridge to post-colonial health. So like, where did all those doctors come from in the World Health Organization who specialize in Africa and Asia? They're all the former doctors of the colonial administration. The guy who, um, had been the director of the Moroccan Protectorate Health Service in 1956, this is the end of the colonial period, he left Morocco to join UNICEF, which had been founded by his father-in-law, and he represented Morocco in maternal and maternal infant health at the WHO. So it's, it's these same people, um, and these, you know, however flawed this colonial system was, um, it does form the bridge to post-colonial um, health. And this lady, Greece. when I met her, she was in her nineties and she was still going back to Morocco and she was still involved in um, women's health. Um, and I also in- interviewed Aisha Shanna, who recently in 2009 won the Opus prize, which is this $1 million humanitarian prize because she created um and uh with some other women, an association to uh support unwed mothers in Morocco and prevent child abandonment and she's quite famous now, and she describes how she started the, um she entered the health field when she was seventeen years old. She was a typist um for the tuberculosis service this was just after independence, and Madame Court de Guise, the same lady said, you know, you're too talented. You shouldn't spend your whole life as a typist. You should go to nursing school and get a nursing degree. Um, and Aisha Shanna said, well, you know, I I, um, I, don't have my baccalaureate, and also my mother depends on me. I have to get this salary to take care of my mother. And so Noel Kortekwis went to the Minister of Health and persuaded him to give Aisha Shanna a full ride Um and plus a stipend to pay for their rent and food, so that she could go to nursing school. So she went to nursing school. She got her degree. She became a social worker. And then in the eighties, she and these other women founded this NGO. So there is this direct relationship. Um, in fact, through these women, you know, these women healers, whether they are the midwives of the <laughs> of the nineteenth century or even the sixteenth century, and these French women. Um, that, that in a lot of ways, um, women, um, as healers are a way, um, they can form a kind of bridge across, um, these more official legal administrative structures, which are largely male dominated by men.
0: Great. Um, I was going to say, uh, so that's pretty much uh, the entirety right there. Um, I didn't know, uh, we've taken a lot of your time. Uh, I didn't know if you uh, had any other projects that you're going to be working on in the future, or there's anything else that you'd like to add that we, maybe we haven't covered as of yet.
1: Oh, sure. Well, um, one thing I did was extend especially these last two chapters into the contemporary period. So I created a Maternal and Infant Health in Morocco um, Study abroad program for students, and we do um, a field study. Um, and I do actually hope to um, do a project in which um, we um, try to use traditional meal, uh, traditional midwives as peer AIDS educators, because I think um, still people go to um, the Qabla, the midwife, for all their personal. Um, sexual problems and reproductive problems. So that kind of person would be a perfect um, peer AIDS educator. Um, And I also have extended some of the methodologies, especially from the first chapter, to study the corporeal politics of the Arab Spring. So there's a lot of things that are happening in and through the body. If you think about this Mohammed Bouazizi setting his body on fire and bringing down um the regime of um ben ali if you think about these um two very famous bodies um hamza el khatib in syria and khaled said in egypt um their deaths and their the images of their brutalized corpses Um, circulated and then there were these Facebook sites, we are all Hamza el Khatib or we are all Khalid Said. So that there's these new political communities that are constituted on and around the body. Um, and also, um, that that um you have uh also corporeal politics people that protest a government action, um either these women who cut their hair in Tahrir Square to protest the new um constitution. Um, um and um also um even this this form of healing and how it creates a body politic, um, it continues in Afghanistan. So there's you can find numerous um newspaper articles in which um, the either the in uh, Toronto Star or the Philadelphia Inquirer, they find that people go out of Kandahar or go out of Kabul, Afghanistan, um, to touch the graves of Al Qaeda fighters for healing. Um, and then um, this guy interviewed um Uh, in Kabul, they interviewed this um, mechanic who was going to touch his al-Qaeda graves and they said, why are you doing that? And the man responded, because I heard it cures sickness and then he said, and because this government is illegitimate, it was set up by the Americans. Um, So, you still have people imagining an alternate um, body politic to this official government structure through health and healing. That's something that's in that example is still happening. Um, so I've, I, um, this is an article project, and I have a fellowship from University of Chicago Divinity School to explore it.
0: Wonderful. We'll be looking forward to seeing and reading about that. Um, I'd like to take the time right now to just thank you for... Um, going through your work with us, uh, absolutely wonderful, and I mean, you know, to call this just medicine, the saints really, you know, only touches on all the work that you really put into this, the, you know, exploration of philosophy, anthropology, it's its just fascinating, and so many different parts that you touch, um, it's a wonderful work, and, you know, we highly recommend that people get out and read this work.
1: Thank you so much, thank you for taking the time today.
0: Oh, no problem at all. And hopefully we'll be speaking to you sometime in the future.
1: Terrific. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for joining us as we spoke with Alan Amster on her book, Medicine and the Saints. Stay tuned in the upcoming weeks for another interview in the Islamic Studies section of the New Books Network. Also, be sure to check out some of the other channels of the New Books Network in the meantime. Thank you.